Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. Uh, we are going to be uh, beginning a new study this morning. So you're, you've come on the perfect day or tuned in on the perfect day because you can get this study from the very beginning. We are going to be jumping into Romans today. So if you've got your Bibles, we want to hear those Bible pages flipping around, okay? Romans. This is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote. Faith, hope, and love being themes, the grace of God fully revealed in this letter to the Romans. Romans is the most comprehensive expression of theology in the entire Bible. I've been looking forward to this for a while, but the Holy Spirit kept, uh, kept bringing, uh, bringing different messages to me on Saturday night. I'm like, Lord, when am I going to get to do Romans. Well, here we are. The day has arrived. Some call this the gospel according to Paul. The theme is God's grace revealed, God's righteousness, our iniquity, and God's remedy through a five-letter word called grace. Socrates wrote a letter to Plato in about 500 B.C., 500 years before Christ, right? Before Common Era. B.C., 500 B.C., Socrates writes a letter to Plato, and he writes this. Can we see this? He says, it may be that the deity, whoever that is, because in all of his wisdom, he didn't know, right? It may be that the deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how. Interesting. In this study, we shall see how. Amen? Let's go to this next graphic. I'm going, to give you a, I'm going to give you some outline material, so you can take snapshots of the screen if you'd like. Also, if you'd like my notes, you know the drill. Just send me an email after, or right now even, chat at chadrandall.com, and I'll shoot you my notes after church. The role of Romans to the Word of God, the role of Romans is this. The definitive gospel according to Paul, we mentioned that already. The most comprehensive book in the New Testament, mentioned that already. The most profound of all literature. Am I setting this up enough for you guys? It's kind of a big deal. Its impact on world history is unequaled, church. Unequaled. The years A.D. 590 to 1517 are known as the Dark Ages. If we know anything about history, we're generally familiar with the Dark Ages, right? The Dark Ages, they were known as the Dark Ages for a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons it was so dark was that the grace of God was nearly completely obscured. The early church understood the grace of God, but grace gradually, gradually eroded into different forms of legalism. The reemergence of an, of an awareness of the grace of God is what led ultimately to the Reformation. Prior to Martin Luther, we're familiar with Martin Luther, 1517, right? His thesis. 
Prior to Martin Luther becoming the great reformer, not many people know this, but he struggled a lot. He struggled. The question he repeatedly wrote in his diary over and over again was, how can a man find favor with God? Over and over again he wrote that. In search of such peace, Martin devoted himself to an exceedingly pious lifestyle. Very pious. He would fast for 10 to 15 days at a time. 10 to 15, that's something. When temperatures dropped below freezing, he slept outside with a blanket. Or excuse me, without a blanket. Would sleep outside without a blanket in below freezing. I'm from South Dakota, I know what that's like. Between his studies, he would beat his body until it was black and blue and beating and bleeding, hoping that somehow by punishing his flesh he could rid himself of the thoughts and the motives that he knew were not right. These were actually typical practices of the medieval church in the time. He actually went to confession so many times a day that finally the abbot said, Martin, either go out and commit a CERN worth confessing or stop coming here so often. True story. Finally, in 1509, Martin decided uh, to take a pilgrimage to Rome in hope of finding the elusive peace for which he longed. He set out on foot across the Alps, the Alps on foot. On his descent, he almost died of a high fever before making his way to a monastery uh, at the foot of the mountains where the brothers nursed him uh, back to health. While there, a wise monk approached him and said, you need to read the book of, uh, of Habakkuk. You need to read the book of Habakkuk. That was a good suggestion because Habakkuk was a struggler just like Martin Luther. Like people today, Martin had questions. He had questions. If God is good, why does he allow suffering? If there is really a devil, why doesn't God just obliterate him? He didn't understand. A lot of times we throw out questions like that, but then we plunge right back into our personal pursuits and wonder why we don't get answers from God. One verse in Habakkuk, though, captured Martin Luther's imagination, and he could not get it out of his mind. Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. He couldn't get it out of his mind. It's actually, it's actually a verse that has led to a trilogy of epistles in the New Testament. Can I see this next graphic? The just shall live by faith is quoted in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. The just, who are they? It's covered in Romans chapter 1. Shall live. Well, how shall they live? Galatians gives us a thorough explanation of that. By faith. Hebrews, of course, being the great work on faith. All three of these epistles use Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 as its cornerstone. This indicates that Paul wrote Hebrews. Now, there's a lot of good debate on that. A lot of good scholars think that he didn't write Hebrews. I think that this is evidence that he did write Hebrews because it completes the trilogy. 
The book of Romans became the cornerstone of the Reformation, therefore. It's hard, that's why I say it's hard to summarize the Reformation's, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, minimize the importance of Romans on world history because it's hard to summarize truly the Reformation's impact on Western civilization as a whole. Honestly, can you ima- imagine Western civilization as it is right now without the Reformation? Well, there wouldn't have been the Reformation without Paul's Romans. So let's take, take a look at a quick outline, and then we're going to just jump right into verse 1, all right? Chapters 1 through 8 will cover faith. Do we have that... Uh, can we have the next graphic, the outline? We should have an outline in there. Mm-mm-mm. Well, if it's not there, maybe look in there and drag it in. I'll just read it to you. Chapters 1 through 8 are going to cover doctrine, essentially. Sin, salvation, and sanctification. Chapters 9 through 11 will cover the topic of hope. Covering Israel's past, present, and future. Chapters 12 through 16 will cover love in a practical sense, service, putting on Christ, law of liberty and love, bearing others' burdens, and teaching us to avoid divisive people as well. And then he'll close with the benediction. With that, let's go to Romans chapter 1, and we'll begin with verse 1. Let's pray, though, first, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for, for this moment, for your word, Lord. We ask that through this study, Lord, that you would plant a seed in our heart that would, that would spring forth new revelation, Father, and greater certainty, Father, greater depth of insight and faith to have your way as we dedicate this time and study to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Right out of the gate, Paul shoots. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, Paul, the name Paul in Greek, interesting. Remember, his name was Saul till God knocked him off his high horse on the way to Damascus. Changed his name to Paul. Paul actually means the least. The least. So the great student of Gamaliel, the great Pharisee, leader of the, of the, of the Jewish guard, becomes the least or little one. Paul really understood the grace of God. In his letter to Timothy, remember, he said, I am the chief of sinners, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul calls himself a servant here, a doulos in the Greek, which means slave, a person owned by another. But here it refers specifically to a bond slave. Paul revealed in... in, uh, in his title here, a bondservant, an Old Testament designation of a slave who in love binds himself to his master. It's a different kind of slave. And he does so in life. Paul, a bondservant of Christ, called to be an apostle, in essence, one sent with a delegated authority. You know, the founding apostles, the, the founding apostles, they had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. That was the qualifier. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, uh, Paul calls himself the least of the disciples, the least of the apostles, excuse me. 
He certainly felt like the least as he persecuted Christians as a Pharisee. He murdered Christians, stood by while Stephen was slain. And yet, this man dominates the, books, the book of Acts. And he wrote 14 of 21 epistles in the New Testament. If that doesn't tell you right there that God can take anybody and do a 180, I don't know what does. So I don't care how far down and out you are. I don't care how disqualified you think that you are. God can use you. He can take you from right where you are. What's that old saying? God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies, he qualifies those he calls. Did I get that right? Called to be an apostle. Set, separated to the gospel of God, he says. Separated to the gospel of God. In other words, set apart to the gospel of God. Paul was set apart, but he, what we have to understand is that he set apart, but not necessarily as you might think. He mingled freely with all levels of pagan society. This was, it was, it was a setting apart to something, a commitment and a dedication to the gospel of God, not from things in isolation like the Pharisees were. He was a Pharisee. You know, sometimes we, when we make a decision to cut habits out of our life, right? Uh, to cut destructive patterns out of our lives. Oftentimes, it means that we're cutting people out of our lives as well, doesn't it? And we need to think about that and how it is received by those people. If we're going to be mature, about this as Christians, we need to think about how that's received, especially if it's a cold break. Hear me on this now, okay? Because we can hurt. We can hurt people that Jesus wants to reach. We can hurt people that Jesus wants to reach. Additionally, if they feel hurt because you found Jesus, then they're going to describe that hurt or that pain to him. We need to be careful to share the gospel and the excitement that has inspired us to change with them. Let me know, let them know essentially that, that what has inspired you to change your life is available to them as well. You never may have a bigger opportunity, honestly, to lead people to Jesus than when you're making a life change for him because people in your realm of influence will notice that you're doing that. Okay? The Holy Spirit may be leading you to leave a lifestyle behind, but that doesn't necessarily have to mean that you leave the people too. Although it might, and it often does, communicating the gospel and the excitement and the reason for your life change to them on the way out the door, they might just come along with you. Actually, when Jesus would make disciples, the first thing that he would always do is he would send them home to their family and friends to make disciples. Interestingly enough, the word Pharisee means separated one. So Paul is calling himself set 
apart to the gospel of God, but not as the Pharisees mean. Pharisees mean, the word Pharisee me actually means separated one in the sense of being isolated and segregating oneself. So I guess the question here is, what are you separated to? If you are set apart, what are you set apart to, right? Paul was set apart to the gospel of God. Mm-mm-mm. Verse 2, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scripture in the Old Testament. Paul is saying he has promised this, this gospel of God that I am separated to has been promised in the Old Testament. In other words, he promised God. You know what this tells us, church? God delights in keeping his promises. Do you know that? He delights in keeping his promises. And this is in contrast to uh, Allah, who is capricious and can do, uh, can do anything that he wants to do. He can keep a promise, break a promise, whatever. God delights in keeping his promises. The gospel is not brand new. It's not, not some brand new thing. It was promised by his prophets all the way through the Old Testament. We always love to say that there is a scarlet thread through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and that scarlet thread, Chuck Missler would always say, is what? Grace. Jesus. Hmm. The Holy Bible is the only book in human history that hangs its entire credibility on its ability to predict the future in advance. And it hasn't failed yet, nor will, nor will it. So we can be assured, we can be assured that God delights in keeping his promises. Verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born, better Greek translation there would be, was made, was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. This asserts that he was God first, then was made flesh, understand. He wasn't born as one is created, as we are born. We don't exist in heaven before we're born here. You know, that's a Mormon doctrine. That's not in the Bible, right? You're not up there, then he puts your spirit into a baby. No, no, you are formed in your mother's womb. You are formed as an eternal being in the mother's womb. That's why the mother's womb is all the more sacred. Amen? So Jesus was and then was made into flesh. This asserts that he was God first, was made flesh, thus... He was God, but he was genuinely human also at the same time as declared by his linkage with David and his resurrection from the dead. In the next verse, this, of course, is a blow because there is a big uh, movement of doctrine in this country right now, probably not just this country, but I know it's especially here in this country. The new apostolic reformation is what it's been labeled uh, in some circles. It's a big blow to this uh, new apostolic reformation crowd that like to suggest that Christ took off his his divinity, set aside his divinity, and was just man. Well, they say that that because if Christ could do that, then you can be like Christ if he was just the man, right? That way you can, the teaching goes that you can then become a little God yourself. You can 
you can do well enough. You can achieve, in other words, divinity yourself. Verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God. So the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. The spirit of holiness here is a simple reference to the Holy Spirit. By the resurrection from the dead, verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. We have received grace and apostleship for obedience. Grace, apostleship, grace, and obedience to the faith. What are, we, what are we obedient to, church? We're obedient to the truth. Faith that Jesus is who he says he is. That he did what he says he did. We trust that he holds our eternity securely in the palm of his hand. In the Greek translation, it is captured as the obedience is a result of the faith, which is a better way to say it. Obedience to God should never be minimized. As much as, as, much as obedience is not what saves us, it should also never be minimized, church. The desire to be obedience ultimately accompanies true salvation. So our obedience and the good works that we step into that he has created beforehand for us to do, that, those works don't save us. The obedience doesn't save us. However, the desire to do so will be put in our hearts with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. We have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Did you know, about that? know that about yourself? You are the called of Jesus Christ, every one of you, every one of you. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, Note the, the label he gives them, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, the word haris there, was a standard greeting for the Gentile. And peace, shalom, was the standard greeting for a Jew. So he's saying grace and peace, as he often does. That means he's speaking to the church, which is largely Jews and Gentiles now. Grace and peace. Shalom means more than peace. It means prosperity, health, and wealth. He is writing to believers is the point, as the unsaved are never named God's beloved. As a matter of fact, in Revelation, uh, after chapter 4, verse 1, you'll never hear God refer to people who dwell on the earth as beloved. After, after that point, you've got your letters to the churches, then Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 hits. From then on, the people who are on the earth are those who dwell upon the earth, earth dwellers, right? Which to me sug suggests a Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, rapture of the church before the seven years of Jacob's trouble. Verse 8. 
First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all, for you all. That your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Verse 9, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. I think this is important, verse 9, because whom I serve, so he serves God. What's he serve him with? He serves God with A, his spirit, and B, the gospel. We're talking about the, the most prolific church planter of all time here. And what's he, what are his tools? We've got all the best machinery and tools and books and social media and everything else. What are Paul's, the most prolific church planter of all time, what tools is he working with to start these churches? My spirit and the gospel. No modern machinery, no emotional manipulation, none of that. It's all it takes, church. That without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. He doesn't cease to pray. When he prays, always he's praying for his brothers and sisters in Christ. How often are we praying for Life Story Church? Application point. How often do you just pray for your church? Lord, right now in the name of Jesus, I just pray for Life Story Church. I pray for Elton. I pray for Jason, Jesse. I pray, I, you know, I pray that, that you would lift up and support. Let, they would feel your presence and your love right now. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would increase them in every way. I pray that you would give them your comfort and peace in all scenarios. In Jesus' name, amen. How often do we do that for our brothers and sisters and for our church body? It needs to be often. I do it every night. Of course, you know, I say prayer time with the kids, so it's kind of, it kind of makes it easier for me. So, But we need to be doing it, guys. We need to be doing it. Paul prays, without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. So the, church, the churches in Romans, or in Rome, excuse me, the churches in Rome, they've got a good reputation. Paul is clearly saying here that he's proud of them. He takes ownership in them. Although he didn't start the churches in Rome, uh, and by the way, it wasn't just one church in Rome that he's writing to. Likely there were several little churches, okay? Because he addresses the believers, not the church in Rome as he does in other letters. He's specifically writing to the believers in Rome, so, and there were a few of them. Uh, interesting thing about the churches in uh, Rome, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell, and everyone began to speak in different tongues, there were people from Rome there. And likely, so these churches that were in Rome when Paul hadn't even been to Rome yet to start churches and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, they took it home to Rome with them. Pretty cool. Verse 10. As he prays, he's making a request. If by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God, and this is important, underline that if you're an underliner, in the will of God to come to you. He is always submitting to the will of God. May we be doing so also. Amen? You know, I... 
I can't tell you how many different times and how many different conversations I have had with people that have either had it spoken over them at a young age or got it in their mind that they're going to be something or do something. Specifically, there's somebody that, uh, that I, when they were a young kid, a pastor spoke over them that they were going to be a preacher. And this young man grew up to be a fine, strong believer and great guy, but he wasn't gifted to be a preacher. He didn't have the, the giftings of a preacher. He was gifted in many other ways, but God had not, at least anyway as of yet, called him into that service in that arena of serving the church. And it would, he was riddled with it. He always had this feeling like he wasn't accomplishing his destiny because some pastor spoke that over him at a tent revival or something when he was a kid. We have always... We've, other times we get things in our minds of our own volition, you know. You know, there's another uh, uh, young woman that I know that had it spoken over her that she was a singer just like her mother was, and she was going to be uh, receiving her mother's mantle. And as long as she stayed in good relationship with her mother, then she would receive that that mantle of ministry and success, so much so, and this was spoken over her by her grandparents, and as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, the grandparents said, and if you don't stay in submission to your mother, then you won't have success, and you won't receive that mantle. And talk about the things that people are told to mess with their head. Ultimately, this person has lived, lived, lived a big part of their life feeling like they weren't accomplishing what they were destined to accomplish somehow until God delivered her from it. The will of God as we pursue anything in our life is paramount. You've heard my story a million times. I wanted to be a, a musician, right? Moved to Nashville to be a musician. And I hung on trying to make that happen, trying to make that happen for so long, right? And it wasn't until I surrendered and said, God, I don't care what you do with me. Just do something. I'll do anything you want me to do. And that was, the f- I'll even be a pastor, I said, right? The will of God is everything, church. And so oftentimes we are robbed robbed in our life of peace of mind, robbed in our lives of really stepping into our true destiny because we've got something else in our mind, whether it's something that we came up with of our own volition or something that was spoken over us. We always must surrender our hearts and surrender our will to his will. Paul lived a life surrendered, totally submitted to the word of God. Paul wanted to go to Asia. In Acts chapter 16, verse 6, didn't get to go to Asia. Holy Spirit said, no, they're going to kill you if you go there. But Paul would have gone there. Now imagine if Paul had it so in his head that he wasn't going to submit to the Holy Spirit and the will of God because he was going to start a church in Asia. I don't know that we'd have 21 letters from Paul, right? Or or seven, uh, two-thirds of the New Testament, rather. 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this. We have this on screen. Regarding the will of God, he said, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. Oswald Chambers said this. Let me see this next one. God's will is hard only when it comes up against our stubbornness. Then it is as cruel as a plowshare and as devastating as an earthquake. I used to do the sermon where I would get a chalkboard up here and I would like, Write, uh, draw a picture of how I thought my life was supposed to go. And I'd make a little house on it, and I'd draw little stick people that were me and my family and my kids, and I'd, you know, probably draw a car that was some really awesome Range Rover or something, right? I'd draw a picture, a little guitar, because I was going to be a successful songwriter and record, recording artist and everything else. And then I would take the eraser... And I would say, you know what, that is what was my will, what I had in mind for my life. If I didn't have that, I wasn't going to be happy, couldn't be happy. And I just would take the eraser, and I'd say, we need to just erase all of this and hand God the pen or the chalk, right? And say, you do it. Because, you know, he knows what's going to make you happy. He knows what's going to make you happy better than you know, that's for sure. And don't you know that's what he wants for you, church? But we must, must, must always be submitted to the will of God, and we cannot underestimate that. Verse 11. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Some spiritual gift. That's how I feel about you guys, by the way. I long to see you. To impart some spiritual gift. Whenever somebody's been out of church for a couple weeks, you know, if you miss church once, then a lot of times we don't see you for two weeks. And if you miss church twice and we haven't seen you for three weeks, suddenly it feels like you didn't see people, right? I long to see you. That's how I feel when some of, some of you guys are sick or out. It's like, oh, great to see you. I long to impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. He desires to instruct them. Keep in mind as we study this book of Romans, this is a personal letter. It's a personal letter, verse 12. That is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me, verse 13. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. His heart, his intent thusly here, he's stating, was to strengthen the Romans, verse 11, was to see some spiritual fruit from them, verse 13, and thirdly, to be strengthened by them as well, verse 12. So let's bring it in for a landing here this morning. I'm not going to go past, if you're looking in your Bible, I'm just going to go up to verse 17, and that's where we're going to stop today because I don't want to, I, I love mowing through a lot of stuff, but I don't want to get into too much that 
we don't give each verse its due. And there's going to be a change of tone in verse 18. So let's, let's bring it in here for a landing. We've got three more verses. Verse 14, I am a debtor, he says. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the foolish and to the unwise. That is quite a statement. That is quite a statement. How would you feel to be indebted to the foolish? Hmm? Think about it. In this climate today, this day and age, all the mess that we've got going on in the world, politically, locally, nationally, how would you feel to be indebted to the foolish? Seriously. I mean, when I'm, I think about the people, the unwise, we'll kindly call them, who have turned, have, have, that they desire to turn, they have, what they've done to Australia. <laughs> I'll just say that. How about the people who have done what they've done to Australia? How about the people who want to turn the last bastion of liberty on the planet into Venezuela. Do you feel a debt to those people? Seriously. It's hard to fathom, especially in this climate, with the enemies of liberty on the march and taking ground, yet Paul's gaze was beyond politics. Regardless of what the fools may believe Paul feels a debt to them because he openly admits that he was once a fool himself. Hmm. Does anybody here know any fools you've been talking yourself out of sharing the gospel with? Anybody in your realm of influence at your work, in your family? And you're you're talking. You're, you know how they'll you know how they'll respond. You know where they come down on the issues. You know what they're for. You're not for it. You know what they're against. You're for it. So you talk yourselves out of sharing the gospel with them. Paul knew firsthand how the truth of God's love. And how the knowledge of the truth could change a life. He knew firsthand that it could turn a person around 180 degrees. He couldn't, he wouldn't rest until he had shared the truth of who God is with everyone he could day to day. Whether they were his enemies or his friends the wise or the unwise. How could I, being saved from such depravity, not offer a rope to those who are now in the same desperate situation as I once was, whether they know it or not? That is the heart of what Paul is saying. There's also a more cynical reality to this verse that might sound familiar. To the Jew, the whole world was divided into two groups, Jews and Greeks. 
with a religious prerogative uh, being the dividing line. To the Greeks and the Romans, the world was similarly divided into two groups. Is this sounding familiar at all yet? How are we divided today? Two groups. Greeks and barbarians, or Greeks and non-Greeks, civilization was the criteria of distinction to the Greeks, to the Romans. Basically, the world was considered either foolish or wise, depending on who you were and where you were. The unwise has significance of being thought of to be uncultured back then, like the barbarians, right? Nowadays, we see the left tries to flip that on us and you know, calls us gun-carrying, Bible-toting folk. You know, we're made out to be the barbarians in this new scenario by the wealthy elites today. <laughs> but if you were to say it in today's terms, what Paul is essentially saying here, wrap your mind around this. If you were to say it in today's terms, Paul even felt indebted to the pagan leftists indebted. Verse 15, so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I mean, that is, that is the big league. This was the capital of the known world. Predominantly pagan, predominantly against everything that Paul was and represented. And he said, I am ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? Verse 16, here's how ready he was. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I don't care what the pagans think of it. I don't care what the elites think of it. I don't care what the leftists think of it. I'm going to shout it from the mountaintop because I am not ashamed of it. Mm. I think sometimes in the church, we've, we've been so comfortable for so long that we forget. You, do, you remember when you first heard the gospel and it first took a hold of your heart? You first realized how desperate your situation was apart from him? And then you, you realized that he had saved you? That he loved you? And that he held firmly your salvation in his hand? Do you remember how exciting that was? That's, that's good news, right? That's exciting. That's inspiring. You want to tell everybody, right? We're emotional people. And the further away you get away from a, an event, the more likely your emotions are to settle down. Paul kept stirring his up, stirring them up, always reminding himself, never stopping. When he gives himself titles as he writes these letters, he says, I'm the least. I was the worst. But look what God has done with me, and he can do it for you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. That word power in the Greek is dynamos. It's where we get our word dynamite. It actually means a better translation would be explosive power. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the explosive power of God to salvation for who? Everyone. Say it out loud. Everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Jesus was a Jew and in the flesh came through Abraham. He's asserting the fulfillment of prophecy here by by throwing that in. But then to the Gentile, as was prophesied, it would come. Salvation for all who have what? Faith. Verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, Habakkuk As Habakkuk said, the just shall live by faith. For in it, the righteousness of God, of God identifies this as a righteousness, a righteousness that God provides for people in response to their faith. The Greek proposition here means out of or from. God declares men righteous. Can I see this last graphic? Well, I guess it's not the last one. This next graphic. God declares men righteous. Not by faith as the procuring cause, for the blood of Christ was the cause. Not by faith as the putting forth of a certain faculty innate in men, much less by the keeping of divine, com- uh, divine co- commands, however holy and just, but out of reliance upon his word being true, and that alone. That alone. In response to faith, church, response to faith, This righteousness is assigned by God in justification and grown then through regeneration and sanctification. Hear me again on that. In response to faith, you're trusting in Jesus saying that Jesus being who he says he is, that he's got your eternity secured because of the the cross and the empty tomb. You are putting your trust, your faith in him in a response to that. This righteousness is now assigned by God in justification. The the root word being justice, the gavel has struck, justice is served, and the king of kings declares you not guilty. Amen? The just shall live by faith. Paul links Habakkuk 2.4 as he will with the two other epistles. Who is righteous? Can we see that graphic again? The just, who are they? Shall live, how shall they live? By faith. I want to close with this definition of the gospel this morning. The gospel We have that. The gospel is not, church, a code of ethics or morals. 
not a creed to be accepted, not a system of religion to be adhered to, and it is not a good advice to follow. It is a divine person, Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Jesus. He died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Amen? The grace of God revealed to us. One more, one more, and I'll leave you with this. Hal Lindsey. You know who Hal Lindsey is? He wrote a book in the 70s called The Late Great Planet Earth. Fascinating read. It was really my introduction into Bible prophecy in my early 20s. Amber and I both had a book of it and we'd read through it. Hal Lindsey said this, What is grace? Simply put, God's riches at Christ's expense. And we'll close there with every eye closed, every head bowed. If we could have some room music. Thank you, buddy. If you're here today, and perhaps you have been living your life hoping that somehow you could please God well enough that he would accept you, Maybe like Martin Luther, you struggled. Maybe you haven't been living by faith. Maybe you're not justified because you haven't been living by faith. The just will live by faith. It doesn't say the just shall be made righteous by their good works and their deeds. No, the just live by faith. Maybe you've been living your life hoping God will accept you. Thinking that when you die, well, I think I'll go to heaven because I'm as good as the next guy or gal. I hope so. You can know so. It's faith. It's simple. It's believing that he is who he said he is that the cross was enough, that the tomb was empty, and he's got you. And that's it. That's enough. Jesus said, my burden is light. It's easy. The path may be narrow. Few are those that find it, but it doesn't say that the way was hard. It's easy because he did it for you. You just need to accept it and rest at Jesus' feet. If that's you today, or if the Holy Spirit is moving on your heart some other way to lay something down, I want you to do that right here, right now. Raise your hand. You can put it right back down. Thank you. Thank you. The Lord sees your heart. There is rest for you. There's rest for you. You are his own. You're his daughter. You're his son. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you for the way that you love me. Thank you, Lord, that I don't have to live my life trying to achieve divinity, trying to achieve being worthy of being called your son or daughter. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you paid that price for me. 
that you created a, a bridge across the void that I could come to you. Lord Jesus, I want to rest at your feet. Take these burdens from me, Lord God. I thank you for your faithfulness, for your word, and that it's true. In Jesus' name, now, let's say this prayer together as we always do every week as a church family out loud because if there's anybody here who has never just put that trust in faith in the Lord as we just described, therefore you, know you don't have that peace in your heart, that knowledge that your eternity is secure. If that's you here today, let's just say, it together. Let's say this prayer together out loud. And the angels rejoice with anyone who comes to that realization that is the true gospel of salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the grave on the third day. I believe my salvation is secure in your hands. Come into my heart and make me new. I will walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. Go before you, follow after you, walk alongside of you. May you prosper in all you do, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. We love you guys. Thank you.